God speaks to us in his word. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Janelle. Greetings. Those of you who don't know me, my name is JJ. I have the privilege and honor of serving as one of the pastors here at Frontline. We're stationed in the Edmond congregation, and I office downtown, so I'm a little bit of a nomad. My wife, Kristen, and my 12-year-old daughter, Isley, are here with us, which is really fun. They made the drive from Edmond. And then my three little boys, Brinker is four, and Schaefer and Ryle are my identical twins. They're downstairs breaking things, I'm sure. They're looking really cute while they're doing it. Pray with me over this text. Lord, it's a privilege to sit under your word together. We're here because we need you to speak to us. The places in our life that are cynical, the parts of us that are battling despair and hopelessness, parts of us that are weary, need fresh grace from you. We need fresh hope. We need you to bring your presence and your peace to us as we open your word. Father, we ask that you would do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Almost a decade ago, I sailed into a storm that I never saw coming. Kristen was pregnant with our twins, Rylan Schaefer, when we moved into 804 Northwest 19th Street, in historic Mesta Park neighborhood. Ben was just down the street from us. We'd been saving up for years in order to make that move, and within a week, the storm hit. Our sewer line completely collapsed. I was in the basement shoveling unmentionable things. We had to move in with friends while we wondered how to come up with the $7,000 it would take to repair it. And the plumbers were kind enough to make it clear there were no payment plans. I felt like I was drowning in those moments. As a guy who got his first paying job at age 14, never had credit card debt, paid cash for every junky car I'd ever driven, avoided student loans, my mother had instilled in me a terror of debt, this felt really different for me. For the first time in my life, I was completely out of financial options. I felt incompetent. I felt ashamed. This is the kind of storm that was tempting me to believe the lie that I might as well brace myself for whatever was coming because I probably deserved it. This is the kind of lie that was tempting me to believe that God was probably indifferent since I'd gotten over my skis and, and apparently let my judgment be clouded out of my desire for this home. And the irony in all that is that we had just seen God powerfully intervene on our behalf when a family member stole my identity, destroyed my credit, left us trapped between the house we'd sold and the house that no bank in the country would loan us money for based on how this family member had been running up bills under my name and my social security number. 
We had to pay a company to repair our credit after all three credit bureaus ignored us. All of that just in time for us to buy this home and move in. It was a miracle. God's kindness to us in a challenging and difficult season. But this felt different. This time was different. This time I didn't have $7,000. Without telling us, our pastor at the time quietly reached out to some families in our church with means, and they were not indifferent. Immediately, 18 families gave us the whole $7,000 we needed to repair the sewer. We were able to move right back into the house. But 18 thank you letters later, I still felt unsettled. I felt unsettled because it occurred to me that I would forever be in these people's debt. And that was a problem for me. I'd grown up watching people in my family fail spectacularly, and so responsibility and self-reliance had become unconscious obsessions for me. My goal became to not fail at everything more than to succeed at anything. In later years, when we were graced to rebuild our savings, I would catch myself fantasizing about paying all these people back so I could reset the ledger, restore my illusion of self-reliance. And I never really realized just how proud and self-reliant I was until that storm hit. And when our sewer broke, God was leading me to receive gifts freely given that I didn't deserve and I couldn't repay. So as we look here at Mark 4, verses 35 through 41, we see Jesus' disciples sailing into a storm of their own that they never saw coming either, that's threatening to destroy them. And just like us, even though they've gotten a front row seat for miraculous scenes of God's provision over and over again in their time with Jesus, we're going to see how this storm tempts them to believe all sorts of different lies about God as well. Notice how Mark sets the scene for us. Verse 36 says, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. In other words, as another translation renders it, they took him along since he was already in the boat. (laughs) He was already in the boat because back in chapter 4, verse 1, we read, again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Now why does Jesus ask his disciples to leave the western shore of the Sea of Galilee and head to the eastern shore, especially after such a long day? Notice there in verse 36, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat. They're probably at least in part just trying to catch their breath, trying to catch a break trying to leave behind this crowd that Mark 3.20 tells us was pressing around them so hard that Jesus and his disciples couldn't even manage to eat anything. Now they don't know it yet, but they're sailing away from the chaos of the crowd only to sail straight into the chaos of the storm. As you know, suffering rarely gives advance warning to any of us. Verse 37, the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, as you consider the men in this boat with Jesus, four of them, at least four of them, two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John, were watermen. Their livelihoods, their vocations, their entire adult lives was in and around the water. In Mark 1, we see Jesus literally calling them away from their fishing nets. Several other translations render this something like, so the boat was nearly swamped. Now, this is not some farm pond on the back of a friend's property. This is a body of water that was 30 miles long and 12 miles across. 
It's literally almost the distance from Frontline Shawnee to Frontline Downtown, a massive body of water that was subject to frequent, sudden, violent storms. Now, what's interesting is in the 80s, a first century Galilean fishing boat was actually uncovered, preserved in mud for almost 2,000 years as the shores of the Sea of Galilee receded historically for the first time ever. I think we have a picture of that. You'll notice from the picture that the sides of a boat like this were very low. They weren't much defense against large storm waves. In Luke's version, in Luke 8, he says, As they sailed, Jesus fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and they were in danger. (laughs) This is a life-threatening situation. These guys aren't just anxious sailors. They know they might not make it through this. How often in our own lives do the circumstances shift just enough and shift just suddenly enough to all of a sudden make God's track record seem irrelevant? How often does the current crisis we're facing push our panic button in such a way that we're suddenly convinced we're on our own all over again? These are men who've seen Jesus' power. They've seen it again and again, but this time's different because the boat is sinking. Jesus may do blindness, they're probably thinking, but we're responsible to handle storms on a lake that we've been sailing on our whole lives. If we can't handle this, what good are we? We've spent years building up the skill to ride out the storms that this lake brings, but all of a sudden our expertise isn't enough. The boat is sinking anyway. We're probably going to drown anyway. So here in our passage, I want you to see when storms hit, they tempt us to believe, all of us, at least three lies. Three lies about God. One, that God's probably indifferent. Two, that prayer probably won't make a difference. And the three, no matter how many times God may have rescued us in the past, this time is probably different. Consider first the lie of God's indifference. Verse 38, Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat, or the stern, Mark says, on the cushion. Similar to how we might say, put the groceries in the trunk. (laughs) Saying to his readers that Jesus was asleep on the cushion or the sailor seat would have just provided a location for Mark's readers to picture in their mind where Jesus was in the boat. And here in verse 38, we need to guard against seeing something mystical in everything Jesus does. Here's a guy who's been teaching all day without a microphone from a boat so the crowd doesn't trample him. He hasn't been able to eat. He's been touching and healing untold numbers of the sick of the demonized. He's fully God, and he's fully man, and at this point, he's fully exhausted. So that's probably why he's sleeping through the storm. The disciples say, verse 38, we're perishing. We're going to die. More literally, this can be translated, we're going to be destroyed. Notice there in verse 38 that they finally say in their desperation, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? This particular kind of rhetorical question in the original language of Mark's gospel always implies that for the one asking the question, yes is the only right answer. Hey, Jesus, you care, right? (laughs) You care, don't you? We hear a similar tone of frustration with Jesus when Martha is facing her own storm, and she asks him in Luke 10, but Martha was distracted with much serving. She goes up to Jesus and says, Lord, don't you care? that my sisters left me alone to serve. Tell her then to help me. This is the cadence 
of our questions when we're suffering and we're afraid and the storm hits because suffering is the kind of thing that never leaves us in neutral. Suffering is always an opportunity for all of us to either confirm our worst suspicions about God's indifference or experience in a fresh way the safety of his presence. Do you not care? But the good news is that even the questions that we ask badly, God answers graciously in his kindness. Because he knows us. Psalm 103 says he knows our frame that we're but dust. And he knows that all too often there's a slippery illogic that starts to play in our minds when suffering hits. And it goes something like this. This is painful, but God didn't stop it from happening, so therefore God must not care. Said another way, we believe the lie that deep suffering automatically equals divine indifference. God must not care. Otherwise, why would he be allowing this to happen to me? Doesn't he know how painful this is? Doesn't he understand that I've always dreaded something like this happening? Surely he knows how hard I've worked for years to prevent this exact scenario, and yet here I am anyway. How cruel of him. This is why the psalmist can pray so honestly in Psalm 10.1. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why does it seem like when suffering is at its most painful, you seem so far away? Why do you hide yourself? in times of trouble. Some of you know the story. C.S. Lewis tragically lost his wife, Joy, to cancer. At that time, he was perhaps the most famous Christian apologist in the West. Previously converted as an atheist professor, a top scholar in his field. And when Joy died, Lewis spent a lot of time working out his agony in his private journal. Never intended for the light of day, but years later was published as A Grief Observed. Lewis writes this. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you almost as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. May as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights on in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seems so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. So what can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Lewis goes on to clarify, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion that I dread is not Oh, so there's no God after all. But, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Lewis understood. The storm of deep suffering always tempts us to believe the lie of divine indifference. Is God indifferent or distant or silent in our suffering? 
Now at this point, any good Jew would be smiling as they read Mark's narrative because they couldn't miss the obvious parallels of a story that they would have memorized as a child. Jonah chapter 1 reads, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Notice, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And just to make absolutely sure that we don't miss the connection, Jesus in Matthew 12 says to his hearers, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, and they're going to condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Not great preaching, by the way. Not his best effort. They repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. A great windstorm, terrified sailors, a prophet of God asleep, woken up by sailors astonished that he could sleep through a storm threatening to destroy them all, men who suddenly fear God greatly when the storm ceases, a prophet thrown into the mouth of a storm to satisfy its wrath, who spends three days and three nights in darkness before emerging with a message of good news for people facing divine judgment. Jesus says, hey, something greater than Jonah is here. Whenever the storm tempts us to believe this lie of God's indifference, we need to remind ourselves that unlike Jonah, Jesus didn't run from God's call to rescue us. When Jonah was told to go to Nineveh and preach so that the people there might possibly repent and be spared, Jonah booked a boat in the opposite direction. But when Jesus was in agony in the garden, begging his father to let the cup of suffering pass from him, he ultimately said, but not my will, yours be done. Jesus faithfully obeyed to the bitter end. He drank that cup all the way to the bottom. Unlike Jonah, Jesus would willingly throw himself overboard into the very eye of the storm, not as a guilty man preserving the innocent from a storm that wasn't meant for them, but as the only innocent man who ever lived throwing himself into a storm meant for them out of his love and his desire to rescue them. When storms hit, they tempt us to believe this lie that God is indifferent. They also tempt us to believe the lie that prayer is obviously not going to make a difference. And yet we see here in our text, verse 39, he arose and he rebuked the wind. He told that storm to knock it off. And in Mark's gospel, if Jesus is described as rebuking someone or something, he's almost always rebuking demons and releasing people from their torment. And so here's a storm that almost literally has a stranglehold on his friends and is threatening to destroy them. And I don't know if you've ever been in a storm on a large body of water, but a storm of this magnitude that's described in our text can almost feel like a living thing, a living, hateful thing that's intent on devouring everything in its path. And with just a word, Jesus gets up and he makes the storm turn his friends loose. Verse 39 says, the wind ceased and there was, notice, a great calm. 
a calm, an unruffled surface on a body of water. From something on the verge of killing them to something as smooth as a marble floor. All with just a word from Jesus. Sometimes in scripture, the sea can represent chaos and evil. That's why we see in the book of Revelation this picture of how God will someday soon finally and fully repair everything that we've broken, Revelation 15 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. From chaos to peace, a great calm. Former economist, marketplace theology professor Peter Williams has written a book called Exiles on Mission, How Christians Can Thrive in a Post-Christian World. And he says that in our moment here in the West, as Christians, we're basically facing two primary questions. One, has the church lost confidence in the gospel? Has the church lost confidence in the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection by which he restores us to God, pays for all the evil that we've done, and then ultimately restores all things? Have we lost confidence in the gospel? Two, do we believe the gospel really is good news for our society, for Shawnee? We might feel that our society, Shawnee doesn't really need the gospel. Does the gospel have anything to offer people battling poverty? Have we outgrown Jesus now that we have nanotechnology and artificial intelligence and DNA sequencing? In other words, Williams is saying here in the West, many of us are just not sure what Jesus is good for anymore. Of all the problems we're facing, how many of them could Jesus actually fix? Like these sailors, we're right in the sweet spot of our competency, and we've exerted so much seeming mastery over the created order that we find ourselves in hospitals asking doctors in shock, hey, isn't there anything you can do? And we're stunned when they soberly shake their heads, no. This is because a whole lot of modern secular belief systems will sail you on a clear night. But only Jesus can command the storm. What you're living for, what you're leaning on, isn't truly tested until you're in the storm. I'm not talking about trying to find some kind of spiritual anesthetic or some good luck charm you can adopt that will make you and everyone you love hopefully immune to suffering. What I'm asking is, when you're in the agony of grief, when the storm hits and you feel like you're going to drown, Will the thing that you've decided gives you meaning and fulfillment in your life actually come and hold your head above water? When storms hit, we're tempted to believe the slide that prayer's probably not going to make a difference. That's because we're in more danger from the things we're good at than the things we're bad at. Because we tend to subtract God out of the places where we feel most competent and confident. But God won't be subtracted out. He loves us too much to let us live this illusion. He's not going to let us keep living this lie of self-reliance because he knows it's going to badly betray us when we least expect. So God is always working to gently nudge us to realize that prayer really does make a difference. He hears us and he draws near. 
one of the biggest reasons why we keep believing the lie that prayer won't make a difference is the third and final lie we see here in our text that we're tempted to believe whenever storms hit, the lie that, well, this time's different. <laughs> this time's different. After he calms the storm in verse 40, Jesus essentially asks his disciples, why did you think this time was different? <laughs> verse 40, why are you afraid? This word can carry with it the idea of cowardice or a lack of self-confidence. And here Jesus connects it to trust in him. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus isn't trying to minimize the storm, but he is trying to trigger their memories of the sovereign display of his power that they've seen over and over again. In verse 35, he said, hey, let's go across to the other side. He meant what he said. This is the man who cleansed lepers in chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, who healed paralytics in chapter 2, who made a man with a withered hand whole and made a whole host of demons fall down and beg for mercy in chapter 3. Jesus wants these men to see that their doubt that they carried with him into the boat is actually a greater burden on them than the storm they sailed into. Anybody can convince themselves they're a Christian when things are going smooth. What good is it to avoid suffering if you don't finish well? Jesus isn't going to spare us from suffering if he knows it's what we need to finish well. So if God's actually given you the gift of faith, if he's gifted you the ability to trust him, when you sail into your next storm, you're actually going to find, probably surprising to yourself, that you're pleading with him and running to him and pouring out your complaint to him. Because his spirit is in you, teaching you to cry Father, and you're not going to do it perfectly, and your doubt and your sin is going to be all mixed up with your trust, but the fact that you're bringing that mixed bag to him at all is going to unshakably confirm who you are and whose you are. This is what the storm does. It reveals the presence of real faith in Jesus, and that's because faith isn't something to brag about. It's a gift. We don't cling to him because we're so noble. If we cling to Jesus, it's because we have nowhere else to go. That's what faith is. Faith isn't something noble and dignified. It's something undignified and desperate. It's us, in essence, saying, hey, you got to wake up, Jesus. You've got to come rescue me if you're sleeping. I've burned through all my best efforts at being a good person. I'm still not. It's evident to me and everyone else around me. I've expended all my moral energy. I've tried frantically for years now to tip the scales in my favor and, and try to outweigh all of my secret shame with just enough do-gooding, but it's like trying to carry water with a bucket with a big hole in it. You got to help me. This isn't working. I feel utterly defeated in my attempts to feel like a good person. Jesus knows that they would have never ultimately discovered how he essentially leads the whole universe around on a leash unless that storm had first got them by the throat and he had to turn them loose. God wasn't so much sending them a message through the storm as he was making them into something through the storm. One of the biggest mistakes that we make in our own suffering and the suffering of our friends is trying to figure out what God is saying through the suffering. There's not some encoded message to look for in the storm, but he's gently trying to help them realize that he's making them into something through the storm. Because they didn't know it when they got in the boat, but they actually needed faith more than they needed comfort. They didn't know it when they got in that boat, but they actually needed deep roots more than they needed an easy day. 
Verse 40, have you still no faith? Now, the problem with the word faith is that it's used in our culture to mean almost anything, which is another way of saying that it means almost nothing. (laughs) But in the Christian scriptures, faith is very straightforward. It's simply trust. Who or what you lean into and rely on? Who or what you're counting on to come through for you in the storm? This is why Jesus is always trying to get his hearers to understand throughout the Gospels that it's not about how much faith you're putting out, but whether or not you're putting it in the right place. If you're putting your trust in the right person, Jesus is always trying to help them understand all you need is a speck. Because faith isn't effective based on its size, but on its source. Verse 40, have you still no faith? After all I've done, do you still not trust me to take care of you? Jesus is appealing to their reason. Because faith isn't opposed to reason. We are. We're the unreasonable ones. Faith is actually the most reasonable response to the most reliable person in all of human history. This is why almost the entire Older Testament is one running metaphor where God's portrayed as a faithful husband scratching his head in bewilderment at his chronically cheating spouse. He gives her everything, and she pours scorn on his love and his fidelity. Jesus is trying to help them see that responding with trust and fidelity to him is the most reasonable thing you can do in the face of the storm because of his sacrificial love, because of his sovereign power, because of the ways in which he's intimately acquainted with our needs. Our lack of faith, our doubt, is really just a form of spiritual amnesia. We're a forgetful people. Jesus' question to them is an invitation to remember. Faith's not a leap into the dark. Faith is a wrestle to call to mind what God's done right in front of us time and time again. Sure, we grow as Christians by learning new truths about God. We grow as Christians by practicing virtue, diligently working out our faith with fear and trembling. But a large part of finishing well in the Christian life is not necessarily about learning new truths as much as it's about remembering old ones. This is why Judges 8.34 can say, and the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Why are you so afraid, Jesus asks. Have you still no faith? Our faith fails because we forget. We fan our faith back into flame when we fight to remember so that we can finally say with the disciples, verse 41, who then is this? Because suffering is always an opportunity to either confirm our worst suspicions about God's indifference or experience in new ways the safety of his presence. Verse 41, and after Jesus calmed the storm, they were filled, notice this, with great fear. In verse 40, he just asked them why they're so afraid and failing to trust him. And now verse 41 says, in response to his miracle, they're filled with great fear. This is clearly a different kind of fear. A fear that produces awe and quiet wonder instead of the terror of death that they were in the grip of just a few moments before. And the fact that this word fear is used throughout the whole Bible for both good and sinful fear 
is easily one of the most confusing things in the whole Bible. But if you take the time to tease it out, you'll find that it's also one of the most profound and comforting things in the whole Bible. Theologian Michael Reeves can help us here. Notice what he says. The biblical theme of the fear of God helps us to see the sort of love towards God that's fitting. It shows us that God doesn't want passionless performance or a vague preference for him. To encounter the living God truly means that we cannot contain ourselves. He's not a truth to be known unaffectedly or a good to be received listlessly. Seen clearly, the dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake. The same word can be used for both right and sinful fears. Anything from bone-melting dread to ecstatic jubilation. We see in Isaiah 33 how it's used negatively. The sinners in Zion, they're afraid. <laughs> Trembling has seized the godless. We see it used positively in Jeremiah 33. They shall fear and tremble because of, notice, all the good and the prosperity I provide. So here's the key. Here's the reason why fear is still the best word to capture both the bad and the good, even though it leaves us a little bit confused. Reeve says, it's because in both verses, the word suggests a physical experience, weak need trembling, of being staggered. Now, I can tremble in quite different ways. I can shake in terror as a soldier might under heavy fire or a sailor might who's drowning. But I can also quake in overwhelmed adoration as when a groom sees his bride for the first time. I saw a six-foot-five guy break down weeping when he saw his bride come around the corner last month as when a groom first sees his bride. That's what's overtaken these men now. The terror of death has in a moment turned into the quaking of overwhelmed adoration as when a groom first sees his bride so that they can marvel out loud, verse 41, even the wind and the sea obey him. Now these men are scrambling to add another category to their conception of what Jesus has authority over. Jesus, this man who when he yells a dead man's name, the dead man gets up and walks out of the grave. Jesus, who tells a 64-square-mile storm to be quiet and it goes like glass. Jesus, who when he tells blind eyes to see, they immediately drink in color. Jesus, who out of his compassion and his power, when he tells lifeless legs to walk, they get up and dance. So all of this should be driving you to the supreme question for you today, which is, what in your life are you still believing doesn't obey Jesus? What in your world are you sitting here today thinking wouldn't come if Jesus called? Because what our text has shown us is there's no storm that you're ever going to sail into that's stronger than the voice of Jesus. There's no suffering that you're ever going to face in your life because it somehow slipped past Jesus. So that we can say with these men, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Pray with me. Lord, we quake and we tremble as we consider your power.
but we're quieted as we consider your love, how you draw near to us. In a moment as we approach this table for a meal with you, would you make our hearts believe these things in such a way that we're, in the words of Zephaniah, quieted with your love, but in such a way that we also quake and tremble as we're filled with awe and we experience in our body the majesty and power and your kindness of you drawing near to us, throwing yourself into the storm, demonstrating for all time that you're not indifferent. Help us, meet us at the table, we ask. Amen.